so, um, confession time, I think, first thing. So, here's something. You look, I've got a lot of education, alright? It's no use for a lot of stuff. I mean, it's, it's completely useless in the real world. But, when it comes to the Bible and stuff like that, it's quite useful. Um, and I have a lot of experience as well in the ministry and I have a lot of things that I've done. Okay, which again in the real world doesn't count for a huge amount but, it, you know, is, is helpful. So, if I'm tired, and I've been tired recently, although this is not an excuse, although I'm making it an excuse to kind of soften the blow, so you'll feel better about me. But, I have the ability, I have the ability to wing it. Okay? I have the ability to wing it. And um, in the last couple of weeks, particularly, we've been preaching on Elijah. Now I've been doing, I don't think I've been doing no study, but I haven't been doing my usual study. And I haven't been putting the effort in that I should be putting in. Okay? Now God has been gracious to me in allowing me to preach a half decent sermon. But, um, this last Sunday, so I want to tell you, this, when was that? Yesterday. Okay, so yesterday, I'm, uh, I'm going over my notes, and I, I, uh, I have a preparation method. I let things kind of just uh, work their way, ferment their way, hopefully up here and into the heart and so on. But I don't actually, um, usually I just I have a preaching Bible and I underline a few words and I go into the pulpit like that. Um, and that's the best way for me to preach. Uh, if I've lost my preaching Bible in the move, so I write down a couple of scratch notes and go into the pulpit like that. Okay? So I've done my outline, which is just a, you know, I have one here. That one. Something like that, but a little less than that. Okay? And uh, so I was thinking and thinking, and I just wanted to get something quick for my soul. So I saw the letters of John Newton on the, on the bookcase. And uh, I was thinking about it and thinking, well, you know, I should pick that up and just read a little bit of it. And maybe, the, in the providence of God, maybe there'll be, I'll come across something about Elijah in there, you see? Because, you know, we all have had that kind of stuff happen to us. So I picked this book up, Letters of John Newton. I open it up and I'm reading it and it's about ministers that, well, he doesn't say this, but ministers that wing it. <laughs> it's about it's about ministers that people your people might not know, but you know, and God knows, and God may save your face, but you know you know in your heart of hearts you haven't put the effort into your. I'm thinking, well, that's not what I opened the book for. <laughs> But you see, that's, uh, isn't that a wonderful kind of providence and uh, nice rebuke, but with a sense of humour to it too. So God was gracious to me. Uh, I confessed uh, 
And I uh, hope that that lesson sticks. Um, because sometimes you can, you know, we can uh, try to wing it. And that's not the way. We were at the end of chapter one of Acts. I hope that that was on the camera, by the way. Did you, did you, yeah, I, I wanted to keep that one on. Um, so, uh, at the end, of, we were at the end of Acts, and I want to start in uh, verse 15, and I'll read down to verse 26. I'm just going to make a couple of comments, and then we'll go into chapter 2. We're not going to go through the whole book of Acts. Okay, it's a history book, and uh, although it's a fantastic book, uh, because it's a history book, uh, primarily, um, there's only certain things that I want to pick out of it, and then I need to get back, get into Paul's epistles, okay? Because we, we do need to get our skates on, but we'll probably spend the whole of tonight in the book of Acts. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of the names was about 120, and said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled. By the way, the 120, notice, were men and brethren. Did you notice that? Okay. This scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Verse 17. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. It's like, well, why do we need to know that piece of information? Actually, it's a really interesting thing that Luke should have included that piece of information because uh, unbelievers have made quite a lot of that and said it contradicts John's account uh, where John says that he hung himself. Okay? Well, no doubt he hung himself. His body got bloated. It fell. You know, the branch snapped or whatever. And this was the result. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that field is called, in their own language, Akel Dama. That is, field of blood. Uh, Again, please understand that even though... um, we mustn't think, because they were pagans, we mustn't think that, that they saw portents in everything. Um, yet, the, uh, the culture of the ancient Greco-Roman world uh, was more open to uh, signs. Um, they were more open to reading um, portents into things. And they would have done that with Judas. They would have said, oh, this is the one who betrayed Jesus. Do you see? And look at, and he hung himself and this happened to him. Do you see? And that's why he's reporting it because it became known as the field of blood because that had happened in it. Do you see? For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. Now, he doesn't apply, sorry, he doesn't say that's fulfilled in Judas. He's applying that psalm to Judas. Do you see? 
and let another take his office. Therefore, now, uh, here's, here's Peter. He's been with Jesus for three years, three and a half years. Notice how he's picking out from the Old Testament these verses. He's not a dummy. Okay? He's going into, well, the only Bible that he had, but notice that he knows it. Okay? Don't think that he's a dummy. He's not. He knows the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And notice that word because it's a very important word in the early chapters of Acts. A witness of his resurrection. But he's a witness of the resurrection uh, only, uh, or, or at least he's, a, he's the, the person who is going to be a witness to the resurrection with the other disciples and join them in that witness only if he's known the whole story and witnessed the whole story. Okay? He's, it's not enough to have seen the risen Christ. He's got to have known the ministry of Christ leading up to the resurrection. Do you see? He's got to have real knowledge of that so that he's got some credibility. He can say, well, yeah, this same one that rose, he's the one I knew, and he's the one I saw on multiple occasions during these years. Okay? And they proposed two. Joseph, some of, son of uh, Joseph, called Barsabbas, excuse me, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Um, Again, this is not a story, a a, a, a commentary on Acts and I'm not answering all of the questions that you might have on these verses. Yet I will pick out one or two things. The first thing is that Judas is said to go to his own place, which is a very unusual turn of phrase. It's a very unusual turn of phrase. And I've I've erased it, but uh, did any of you do any of that work that I suggested? Looking up Kerioth? Did any of you look up Kerioth? In Moab? Okay. Yes, there are a number, but there's a couple that are kind of interesting. They're striking. Um, but okay, if you didn't, that's fair enough. But it is unusual. Okay, he's somebody that Jesus called Diabolos. Yeah, he called him a devil. He didn't call him Damon. He called him Diabolos. And uh, he goes to his own place. So, just keep that in mind, okay? Um, it's we- he's weird. Judas is a weird guy. Judas is a Jew, but he's not a Jew. He's, or rather, he's a Jew, but he's not from Israel. 
he's a, a Syrian Jew. Okay, he's a Syrian. He's from Moab or Edom. Okay, that's where Kerioth it was. Okay, man of Kerioth, Ishkariot. Yes. <clears throat> so he goes to his own place, wherever that is. And that's not heaven. Okay, Jesus said uh, that, uh, you know, it's better that... Uh, uh, a guy gets a weight wrapped around his neck and gets thrown into the sea, then do what he did. So that doesn't sound like promotion to glory to me. And they cast their lots. The last verse, I think it's verse 33 of Proverbs 16, says the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole dividing thereof is of the Lord. And, of course, the idea is in Proverbs that uh, it's done to the Lord, it's done under the providence of God, but as the whole of, well, a lot of Proverbs 16 indicates, God is the God who um, dictates circumstances, particularly as they are brought to him. This, because it's such a matter of moment, this is not, should I shop at Target anymore? You know, and uh, throw the bones on the table and so on. Um, This is about something very important. Please note that. Don't start uh, casting lots for every single decision. I mean, use your common sense. Use the Bible. But for something momentous, um, maybe if you can't decide, there are worse things, but you bring God into it. Do you see? So, Matthias is chosen. Notice, by the way, it's not just arbitrary either. There are strict credentials that these men have to pass before they even make the casting of lots. Do you see? It's not, well, you know, this guy seems to be a godly man, but it could be any of these lords, so just you do what you want. You know, that's the modern church. Um, No, God's given us common sense, so use it. Um, Anyway, that's all I've got to say about that. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It was like a, a rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, where? who are they? Probably the 120, okay? Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Now that's very interesting, that God gives a token, or he gives a symbol of something. Now, he doesn't just um, decide, well, you know, I'm going to, I think I'll have a fiery tongue today because I'm feeling in a fiery tongue mood. So I'm going to just choose that as an emblem. No, it obviously pictures something that is being done on behalf of these men. And we'll see here that it's it's, uh, restricted to just a few of them. Okay, just remember that. 
and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, who did Jesus say to tarry in Jerusalem? Who did he say that to? To his disciples, okay? To the eleven, particularly. All right? And he said they would receive the Holy Spirit and be baptized with the Holy Spirit, okay? And they began to speak with other tongues. Now, obviously, we already, today, we say that person, we don't say it as much. In England we do, you know, this person speaks with a foreign tongue, okay? In America it's lang- a foreign language, but we still speak about, uh, you know, foreign tongue or something like that. That's what it means. It means a language, Okay? That's what it means. It's not got anything to do with any ethereal language, any gobbledygook or any blubbly, 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 you know, hastala shandai untie bow tie or any of that stuff. It's got <laughs> nothing to do with any of that. It's a language. But notice a tongue comes down on each of them. All right? Which means that each of them are being given this gift, this ability. And obviously God doesn't give gifts uh, superfluously or pointlessly. Uh, but the Spirit is giving them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews. Here's your context. Devout men from every nation under heaven. Well, of course they are. Because this is the feasting time. Jesus was killed on Passover. Uh, this is where Jerusalem, a city of perhaps it's difficult, you know, populations, it's really difficult in the ancient world to get an idea, but probably a fairly largish city of around about 50,000 people. Okay? But around the uh, Passover uh, time, uh, uh, right the way through to the you know the feasts and so on the Pentecost feast, fifty days feast, Jerusalem will be packed by Jews from all over the Mediterranean world, um, probably swelling up to about two hundred thousand people there. Okay, so there'd be a lot of people there. This is the context in which this is happening. So they've come from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. They heard it. Because everyone heard them speak in his own tongue or language. So what what was going on, you see, is that uh, these men who were untrained in these other languages. I mean, they, were, they could speak Aramaic. They almost certainly wouldn't have been able to speak Hebrew fluent, fluently. Very few Jews in the first century world could speak Hebrew well. Um, and Greek. They could certainly speak Greek. But uh, these Jews are coming from Bithynia and they're coming from uh, from. Thrace, and they're coming from Rome, and they're coming from, you know, all of the Mediterranean world. All all with different languages and different dialects. That is what is happening. They are speaking to these people, not using Greek, which is what they would have used to speak to a large crowd like that. 
uh, but they're using all kinds of other languages, the languages of the districts of the ancient world that these people uh, dwelled in. Okay? That's what's going on. So, then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? Well, were the 120 Galileans? Probably not. But we do know that the 11 were Galileans. Okay? So, again, that kind of restricts the people that are speaking with tongues probably down to just uh, the 11, maybe the 12 with Matthias there. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And then, in case you think this is an angelic language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, that's kind of Babylon area, yes? Judea, Cappadocia, that's the middle of Turkey, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. This is an amazing miracle that's going on. And unless you think angels are from Parthia and Mesopotamia and Bithynia, this is not an angelic tongue. This is the human language. And they're speaking these things, obviously, for a reason. And um, um, this is obviously a clear sign from God that this is of God. So whatever's going to be announced here is, it's got already God's stamp on it. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine, because you will always, always, always find people who it doesn't matter what the evidence is, what is presented to them, they don't want to see it. This is what I was preaching about yesterday with Elijah. Um, You know, Elijah, he comes down from Mount Carmel. Remember, he runs down the 15 miles from Carmel to Jezreel. He's running in front of the chariot of Ahab. And um, that's where chapter 18 finishes in First Kings. Again, maybe Jezreel, you know, one of my friends at the church, he, uh, we were discussing this after the sermon. He said, yeah, I can just imagine uh, Elijah standing outside the gate in Jezreel thinking, yeah, just in a minute, you know, Everybody's going to be a huge revival. Everyone's going to turn to God and people are going to come out and I'm going to be the man, you know. Instead, the next thing he hears is, you know, Jezebel's going to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Why didn't Jezebel change? Why wasn't there a reformation in Israel? Because it's not about facts, folks. It's not about reason. Sin is never about reason. So if you're trying to use reason, as we ought to, always, but if you're trying to to reason a person into belief in God, uh, you'll never do it because it's ethical. 
Okay? It's an ethical, it's a moral issue, always. Okay? Scientists that, that want to cling to the pathetic doctrine of Darwinism um, and natural selection instead of believing in, um, in supernatural creation. Uh, people that want to believe in materialism and physicalism that everything is matter and that's all that it is. Even your thoughts can be boiled down to matter. Um, your emotions and everything. You're just a big machine. Okay? That, which is the reigning idea in psychology today. Um, if you've shipped your kid off to study psychology. Um, if, if that is what the case is, then I hope you can see that, uh, that we're not talking about here reasoning with a person like that. You can't reason with a person like that. They've chosen something to believe which has authority to, behind it and a few facts behind it that kind of fit within the puzzle if you don't look too, um, too deeply into it and they're satisfied with that because now they can get on with their lives without God. You see? And that's what's at the root of it. That's what's at the root of it. So apologetics is very important but when we, if we ever do study apologetics here I'll be making that point. And whenever we're dealing with somebody about God or telling people that we're Christians, you have to understand that, that uh, for many people, particularly nowadays, that groan, that, that it may not be an audible groan, but you almost feel it from people, that the, the uh, discomfort that, that enters the room when uh, the word Christian comes up or Bible comes up, uh, that's because people... Uh, they don't want that pressed upon them. They want a life that is insulated from God. You see? And so that's what's going on um, here. People mocking, saying they're full of new wine. But Peter, he takes an opportunity here. He's, uh, he's a, a good outdoor preacher. Uh, an outdoor preacher takes opportunities in the crowd. He picks up on things that people say and then uses them. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Uh, he's using a little bit of humour there. Do you see? But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So he's taking them back to the Bible straight away. And now all kinds of trouble starts because this is, um, this is grounds where many Christians uh, part company when it comes to the interpretation of the Bible and the interpretation of the Old Testament. So let's read it and then I'm going to run through a couple of these interpretations with you. He's talking from uh, Joel 2. And the quotation says this, verse 17. It shall come to pass, notice, in the last days, says God, 
that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by lawless hands have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, as powerful stuff, notice the focus here. He hits a number of nerves, doesn't he? Uh, with the biblical text, he's drawing their attention to scriptures they know. So, he's using scriptures to point their attention to something that he wants to call their attention to. Now, notice that the context of this is, is they're asking, what's going on? What, how come these people, these Galileans, can speak these languages? What about that weird noise? What's this supernatural thing that's happening in this gathering in Jerusalem. Do you see? And so pointing here to the prophet Joel and to this well-known prophecy and, and uh, then pointing to Jesus, then saying, just recently, you all know about this, just recently, you guys killed him. You killed him. But God was in it. The same God who was allowing these men to speak like this. The same God who, who made that noise that made you all amazed. He allowed Jesus to be taken by wicked hands and to be killed. But God has raised him from the dead. Okay? So, You've got to understand that they knew about Jesus. Remember the, the men on the road to Emmaus and Jesus, he, you know, he hangs out with them for a while and he says, what, what's going on? Why are you so sad? And what's the, what do they say to him? Are you the only one in Jerusalem that knows this, doesn't know this? What happened? Because everyone knows. This is a big deal. What happened to Jesus, do you see? We trusted that he would have been the one. So, I say that because you've got to get yourself as much as possible into the, uh, the minds, into the, uh, the ideas of 
the men who hear Peter. Please don't think that these people have just come from First Baptist Church and they're hearing him, okay? And they're full of, of singing about the church and hearing about the church and reading Paul's letters. No, they're not. They've heard the, the scrolls, the Hebrew scriptures. That's the only ones they know. Do you see? And so, they've come, they've come to this feast in Jerusalem. They're all of a religious mind. In fact, we're told that these are devout men. And then they, they see this manifestation of God. They hear this miracle and they get this interpretation of what it's all about. So what is it all about? And what on earth is Peter doing quoting from Joel? Here are some interpretations for you. One interpretation. It's kind of popular one. All of Joel 2, verses 28 through 32, was fulfilled in Acts 2. All of it was fulfilled. You say, yeah, but wait a minute. The sun, did the sun turn to blood? I don't remember reading that in the context here. And, um, oh, the moon turned to blood, sorry. Uh, was this the day of the Lord? Uh, were there, were there prophesyings and so on? It doesn't, doesn't say anyone prophesied here. Were any women present? doesn't say there was. So there couldn't be any maidservants there, do you see? So, sons and daughters, well, it's not going on, is it? Yeah, but the gist of it, these people say, you see, something impressive is happening, and so we'll just wrap it all up and say that, okay, there's a little few, there's a few things that are not going on, but it's all really impressive, isn't it? And so we're just going to say it's fulfilled because Peter said it's fulfilled, and that's good enough for me. So that's one way of dealing with this. Okay? which is rubbish to me. Okay, it's nonsense. That's my view of that. Godly men, good men, but wrong in, this, in my view. There are others who are not willing to do that. Okay? They are not willing to say this was literally fulfilled. They say, obviously, this stuff wasn't fulfilled. Obviously, Joel, in the context, he's talking about the second coming of Christ. Okay, if you look at, at these phenomena, particularly uh, the signs in the heaven, and you look at uh, G- what Jesus says about his second coming, they match up. This is second coming language. So obviously this didn't happen. But uh, what he's doing, what, he's, he's making an impression, a, a vivid impression. He's not saying that it's all fulfilled necessarily. But he's, he's, he's really making a big impact. He's getting a big scripture ball and throwing it at them, you see, and it's going pow! And waking them all up and they're ready to repent. And I say, no, that's not what's going on either. Because it's missing a very important factor here. Uh, we are in Acts 2. In Acts 1, not very long before, Jesus, the risen Jesus, had been teaching his disciples about what? 
Come on, come on. Thank you. The kingdom of God. They asked a question about what? Thank you. When are you going to restore the kingdom of God to Israel? Okay? That's what, what was in their minds. We're going to see in chapter 3, it's still in Peter's mind. So, Peter has this expectation, he has the, a, an, an anticipation. Who wouldn't in a, an atmosphere like this? So he picks out something about the day of the Lord from the prophet Joel. And it's anticipatory of prophesying that the last day, signs and wonders, and then the climax of it all with these um, heavenly disturbances. In that interpretation, which is my interpretation, It's other people's too, but they're not here. The this in verse 16 is anticipatory. It's not, he's not saying this is what's happening and then misapplying a scripture when it's obviously not happening. No, that's not the way to interpret it. He's saying this that I'm going to tell you about, this is in the offing. I mean, it's just around the corner. Do you see? He's, he's linking the Holy Spirit coming with these other events. And notice, twice in this quotation, the Holy Spirit is mentioned. I call your mind back to when we studied the prophets. Do you remember... The uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, I think. Do you remember um, Ezekiel chapter 36? Do you remember these, these prophecies of the Spirit of God who comes at the end of the age? And what does he do with Israel? He takes away the heart of flesh, and different metaphors are used, but takes away the heart of uh, stone and gives them a heart of flesh. Thanks for the correction. Uh, He regenerates Israel, the Holy Spirit. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. They need the Holy Spirit for the fulfillment of these other promises. As we've seen, all of the other covenants, they're held in abeyance because the people aren't saved. God can't fulfill his covenant obligations upon lost Israelites because they'll mess it up. He's got to change them. He's got to save them. He's got to get them in right relationship to himself. You know from your own life that unless God had come to you and God had wooed you and changed you, and brought you to himself, you wouldn't have come. Don't think these Jews were any different. Paul will underline this in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. He says, he will say, the carnal mind is enmity against God. So, how can God, where's me pen? So, how can God here come along with all these wonderful covenants? Okay, 
and he goes into all of these solemn obligations about these covenants, okay, and he fulfills them on an Israel whose heart is at enmity, which I can't spell, (laughs) to him. Doesn't make any sense, do you see? This is ridiculous. God's not going to do that. He has to take this enmity away. That's the Holy Spirit's job and the Holy Spirit comes upon Israel. That is a last day's prophecy. And you find it in Joel. You find it in other places. Also in the prophets. And because I'm a bit empty-headed right now, I can't remember any of the verses. But certainly in Ezekiel's there. Um, excuse me. So, uh, this is what Peter's expecting. Holy Spirit coming. So then this is what's going on. He's pointing to the end times um, change that he's expecting. Because in the end times, that is exactly what does happen. Do you see? If you think that that's not what he's doing, then uh, I would love to know. Okay? Let's go down this list. Did God pour out his spirit on all flesh? On all flesh? No. Okay? Did sons and daughters prophesy? No. Did young men and uh, old men dream visions and uh, see visions and dream dreams? No. Men servants and maid servants? No, we don't read about them at all. Uh, wonders in heaven? Did you read any about wonders of heaven? Did the uh, was there blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun turning into blood? Didn't hear anything about the sun and the moon? So what's going on? Do you see? It doesn't fit if you say that Peter is saying this is fulfilled because it wasn't fulfilled. It only fits if you get yourself in the context and saying, this is Peter's expectation. Alright? Peter is expecting this to happen because the Holy Spirit has arrived finally. You say, but yeah, what about the church? Peter doesn't know anything about the church. I mean, he he knows that Jesus said something about it, but that's just a Greek word, ekklesia, that means a calling together do you see well that's a calling together of the Jewish elect according to Peter's mindset surely look what he says here verse 22 men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth a man attested by God to you by miracles wonders and signs he's spoken about wonders and signs in verse 19 So he's connecting the wonders and signs of Joel into the wonders and signs that Jesus did. You say, yeah, but Jesus died and he went to heaven. Yeah, but it was only a month ago. It wasn't very long ago. Even I can remember things that happened a month ago. I mean, some things. And I certainly could remember wonders and signs, you know, signs, you see. So, 
Do you see, you've got to put yourself in that anticipatory atmosphere that he was in. A man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. And then he talks about God raising him up, verse 24, which is the culmination of his teaching. He's going to quote from uh, the Psalms in a second. This is the culmination of his teaching. God raised him up from the dead. The resurrection has happened. He's seen it. It was an extraordinary thing. And he expects God now to act on this. He's not expecting at this time, he is not expecting a 2,000 year gap between the resurrection of Christ and the second coming of Christ. So verse 25, David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord before, always before my face. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover my flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Hades. Alright. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now Psalms is poetic. What's Peter talking about? What's his main subject here? About when he's talking about Jesus. Remember it says concerning him, verse 25. So what's he saying about Jesus? That he's been raised, yes. So he's using this to show, okay, that God had prophesied the resurrection. Now it's in poetic form, but let's see if we can pick it out. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand. I shall not be, sa- be shaken. He said in verse 23, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Do you see that? Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover my flesh also will rest in hope. Again, for the same reason. For you will not leave my, to- my soul in Hades, the place of departed spirits, the place of the dead. Okay? This is what is generally known that, uh, that Hades was known as. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now what this text is doing is saying this, who is, he's identified as Jesus, is that special messianic figure. Okay? He's saying, Jesus has risen from the dead. You know about this. We proclaim this. He's the one spoken of in this psalm. Great opportunity to, for them to, to make that connection. You have made known to me the ways of life. How can you make known to someone to make the, the ways of life when they're in Hades? You will make me full of joy in your presence. There's a, it's, it's, it's not... Clearly resurrection language, but it's certainly life after death language, isn't it? So he's using that to, to focus their attention on Jesus and on their message of resurrection. We see these tongues, we hear this noise. Uh, there's a, a great emotion in the atmosphere. 
And then he says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath, look at that word, with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Which covenant are we talking about? Davidic. And it's an oath. Notice that. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Do you see what he's doing? That means a resurrection, doesn't it? If the flesh doesn't see corruption. See what the way he's interpreting it? And he's do, it's, it's a clear interpretation, isn't it? He's not spiritualizing anything. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Okay, uh, just we need to ask a question here. Doesn't this put a bit of a spanner in the works of Hennebrist theology? Because he has said here that by an oath in the Davidic covenant, he's promised that he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Ah, that means using, you know, our default of reason, just going off like this. It means that Jesus is on the throne of David now, in heaven. Because Peter's just said he's been raised up to sit on the throne. Do you see? But is David's throne in heaven? Was David ever promised a throne in heaven? Of course he wasn't. So those people that do that, they don't realize that they're using this, what I've called this, this independent thought. Going off, thinking independently, ah, this is fulfilled and Jesus is sitting on the throne in heaven, it's David's throne. Therefore, David's throne is not a literal throne on earth, it's a throne in heaven. Which means that the kingdom of David cannot be a literal throne on, uh, kingdom on earth, it must be a spiritual one in heaven. What am I doing when I'm putting these things together, logically? I'm using my independent reason. Do you see? That's how people theologize. That's how many people do it. And they, 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 before they know it, they're so far afield from what the Bible teaches and from what the Old Testament promises and what the covenants say that they have to say, oh, okay, so it's either my new interpretation or it's the covenants. One of them has got to give. And guess which one gives? The covenants do. The Old Testament does. Because I've reasoned to this conclusion, do you see? We've got to go more slowly. We've got to think more like a first century Jew would think. I've already said this and then there's this expectation of the kingdom. Think about that and then read it. And then you'll see that the oath is a Davidic covenant, an end time fulfillment. He's asked Jesus, or the disciples have in six, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? If there's a kingdom restored to Israel, guess who's going to sit on the throne? Jesus. 
So that's in his mind. Jesus didn't say, you know, no, it's just all spiritual. Jesus just said it's not for you to know the signs of the seasons, isn't it? So, so Peter's still got this expectation going on. I'll prove this to you more in a, in a few minutes. Read in that context, verse 30, God has sworn with him, with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, so there's the resurrection, that he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Because the Christ, and we're going to see this in a second, is the son of David. And they'd already, they knew this in the first century. They already knew that the, the Messiah was uh, David's seed. Okay, The one who would sit on the throne. That's who they, they were waiting for. They crucified Jesus in part because he didn't uh, set up David's throne. Okay, They offered him the kingdom and he didn't want it. <coughs> Not that way. Satan offered him the kingdom and he didn't want it that way either. <coughs> he had to die in order to get it. He had to go away into a far country in order to get it. Okay? Karl Barth, though I don't recommend him to you, makes a lot of that in his church dogmatics, and, and rightly so, that, that he, it's, he takes a journey into a far country. So, um, this is an, uh, full of covenant fulfillment expectation. The resurrection is linked to the throne and is linked to the kingdom by Peter. This is why he speaks prophetically like he does. This is why he brings in Joel, this dramatic uh, verse. Jesus had not long before spoken about some of this very phenomena on the Mount of Olivet. Verse 31. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. That's his main focus here that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. There's bringing you back to the context. But you can see what's in his heart. Now let's see what he does. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, yes, I've still got this up here, Remember this, the expectation, remember the Joel prophecy? It's an end time prophecy for Israel. <coughs> Do you want another one of those? And no. Okay, you good? All right. Um, <laughs> it's that time of year. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Who did? Who did? Who poured it out? Who, who's the he? Who's, who's he talking about? He's talking about Christ. Christ pours it, poured it out. Please understand, he's, he's, his mind is full of Christ. His mind is full of, of the expectation of Christ coming back. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, now quoting from a very uh, famous messianic psalm, Psalm 110, 
the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Until. Well, why on earth did he talk about that? Because he's expecting him to come back. Okay? You could say, until the second coming. Until I send you back. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord, as in Psalm 110. Christ, as in Psalm 16. Do you see that? So, this is why I'm saying the expectation of Peter and the apostles fits all of these uses of the Old Testament. And it's right in line with those covenant uh, expectations we've seen all the way through the Gospels. And you don't have to spiritualize Joel. And then go off in this, these wild imaginations that, oh, well, obviously these weren't fulfilled literally, but we don't interpret the Bible literally, woodenly, literally. You don't think Jesus is a gate, do you? You know, all of this stuff. So, in a, you're mocking the, the prima facie interpretation of Scripture so you can't be, don't have to believe what it says and calling that spiritual which is what people do and what they're doing I believe and they're well intentioned and much better and much brighter men than me have done it okay so I'm not condemning anybody but at the same time I'm disagreeing strongly which I think I'm allowed to do and um, and these men what they've done is that they have used they have not realized that their default setting is independence from God independent thinking from the scriptures and they've allowed themselves to concoct this theology ah this must mean that this is a general kind of fulfillment and therefore Joel is fulfilled but if Joel is fulfilled then the day of the Lord is fulfilled at Pentecost which means we're not listening we're not waiting for the kingdom a literal kingdom on earth to be set up and uh, this quotation from the psalm, Psalm 16, proves that because it says that Jesus is now on the throne of David in heaven. doesn't say that, by the way. But you see, this is how people think. So therefore, Jesus is reigning now in heaven from the throne of David. But where is he reigning? Not over Israel, because God's done with Israel over the church. And the church is the new Israel. And ta-da! We have, with just a few logical bounds what we have done is basically taken a massive big soccer boot and kicked the Old Testament into touch we have devalued everything that the Old Testament has said all of the expectation all of what the prophets said all of the covenants okay all of that picture that we built up in the first two courses we have just on the basis of just a few verses, okay, we've just kicked it into touch, into the stands. 
And we will call upon it when we're ready to call upon it. But when we call upon it, what we'll do is we'll interpret it according to our understanding of the New Testament and the church. And this is what Christians have done. All right. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus had said to them. Jesus had said that um, that John baptized with water, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, 1.5. And then remember what uh, Peter has said here, uh, where I'm, I'm, I think I, I did it earlier and I've lost it. Uh, oh, I can't think of it now. I, I thought I'd made a mental note of it and I didn't. Okay, it, it did say that they were uh, beginning from the baptism of John, so he links it back to the baptism of John. Do you remember? which wasn't that long ago, it was three and a half years ago. And uh, John had prophesied this stuff, baptism with the Holy Ghost, okay, for Israel. But how did John, what did John require in order for that to happen? Repentance. Repentance. So do you see that Peter, Peter here is picking up on John the Baptist's preaching. What did John the Baptist preach? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He doesn't know anything different. We're not told that he knew any other message than that. Now, I know we can say, we know because we've read the end of the book. Okay? But Peter in Acts 2 is Peter in Acts 2. It's not Peter in Acts 28. Well, he's not. Yeah, he does make it to Acts 28, but not very much after that. Do you understand this? You've got to stick to the context and allow the time to pass by and allow these disciples to come to knowledge. And, and you cannot impute knowledge to them that the Bible doesn't give you to impute to them. It's like saying... Um, you know, misusing what Jesus said about um, Abraham. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. Okay? In John 8. And um, people say, oh, so Abraham was looking forward to Jesus. This is what, again, they're, they're interpreting, not what it says, they're interpreting according to their their knowledge of the New Testament. But Abraham didn't have a New Testament. He didn't even have have the book of Genesis. Um, Abraham knew that Christ was going to come. He didn't know who he was. 
Abraham didn't know what, what Galilee was. He didn't know about Bethlehem. Bethlehem didn't exist when Abraham was there. He didn't know about crucifixion. That wasn't invented until the 6th century BC by the Persians. Do you see? You've got to put them in the time that they belong with the knowledge that they had. You can't give them knowledge that you have, but he didn't have. The only knowledge that you can give them is the knowledge that the Bible said they had. You say, yeah, but they could have known more. Well, they could have done. But that's an argument from silence. They probably did know more. But since you don't know what they knew, and the Bible doesn't tell you, it's silent on it, you should not provide for them a biography full of, you know, an intellectual biography of all the things they knew because you're guessing and you don't get that from the Bible. Peter at this time, as far as we know, was expecting the kingdom and all he knew was Jesus had just died, Jesus had risen again, he knew the preaching of John the Baptist uh, about the Holy Spirit coming. He knew the Old Testament prophecies about the Holy Spirit coming and his expectation was a covenant expectation. Are you guys getting warm in here? Yeah, it's getting Can we open up a little bit again, Gary? Is that all right? Yeah. Just a little bit. <clears throat> okay, so... Uh, where am I at? And can you also add in, and he was just touched by the Holy Spirit? No, because, I mean, he was, obviously. But the Holy Spirit doesn't give him any more knowledge than we can actually find in the Old Testament here. In other words, uh, everything that's attributed to him, we can pick out if we just pay attention to the Bible. Obviously, he's preaching... Uh, prophetically and obviously he's preaching authoritatively and the Holy Spirit is giving him utterance but the Holy Spirit is not giving him any information that he doesn't already have it's allowing him to to put this information together and preach it to thousands of people and to be heard at this day but we can actually find where he gets this stuff from it's nothing new None of this is new. So, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, very specific, for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And, you know, promising here to Israel generally and many other words he testified and exhorted them saying be saved from this perverse generation and it says then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day were about 3,000 souls added to them they continued steadfastly in apostles doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers and fear came upon every soul many wonders and signs were done through the apostles now, all who believed were together and had all things in common. You know all about that, okay? Chapter 3. 
So we're rumbling on to chapter 3 because chapter 3 is really important because what I'm trying to get across to you in chapter 3 is more of this understanding of where Peter's theology is at. And you, you shouldn't miss this. This is really easy to get. Okay, as long as you're not bringing the rest of the New Testament into where Peter's at. Peter doesn't have a New Testament. Paul's not saved yet. Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer. What were they doing there? Why on earth would they be going to the temple? Yes, but wasn't the, uh, the temple, um, the curtain rent when Jesus was crucified? I, weren't, wasn't God through with the temple? Uh, well, was the temple just just no good anymore? It's pointless. I mean, Christians shouldn't be going to the temple anymore. Exactly. There's my point. Very good. Exactly. You know that right now. You know that because you've read Paul's epistles later on, and his doctrine. These people didn't. They, of course, they went to the temple. That's where people worship God in the temple. So they went up to the temple at the hour of prayer in the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, uh, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. You know about this uh, amazing uh, miracle. And I only mention it here because it gets them into deep water. But again, what is he doing? Look at verse 6. Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. So he does that. And then everyone's amazed. Verse 11. So when Peter saw it, now he gives... This is another opportunity for him. How's he going to do it? Is he going to spiritualize the Old Testament? He responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us? As though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Please, when you notice those three together, we are talking about the patriarchs of Israel not the patriarchs of the church. The God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. Servant, that's Isaiah language. Whom you delivered up. Notice the the, uh, trenchant preaching here. You delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the Just. They knew who the Holy One and the Just was here. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. This is the depths of sin. And uh, if I can play the preacher just for a second. This is what needs to be opened up to people in the pulpit. Do you see? They're, they've come and they want to know about this miracle. What do they get? You're a bunch of murderers. In fact, you 
You denied God's Holy One and you are so ungodly that you would rather have a murderer than God's chosen one. That's what you're like. That's what you're really like. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. That's the idea. Do you see? That's the idea. Now, what are they going to do with it? They can reject it and go away in a huff or they can repent because they see their sin before God. They're not going to... No one's chatting at a coffee machine uh, in a ventilated uh, church auditorium with nice seats and music going on about this. They are in earnest in the dusty streets of Jerusalem. You say, why do I say this? Why, why do I, I have to talk like this? Because, folks, we have sometimes not realised that in order to get to the heart, we don't cosset the body, the flesh. We don't make the flesh cosy so the flesh can think about how rotten it is. Do you see? There's a mixed message there going on. Okay. today would be, oh, that's just harsh and mean. Yeah, oh yeah, I understand. I understand. But um, since I'm... You know, I'm not in my pastoral role here. I'm in my normal teacher role. Then I can say it with impunity. (laughs) Actually, I do say this kind of stuff from the pulpit too. Um, But so you denied the Holy One and the Just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead. There it is again. Resurrection again, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, faith which comes through him who has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. He's gracious. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ would suffer. Isaiah 53, servant. You see, he's already called him servant. Isaiah 53, my servant. Um, He has thus fulfilled. Well, has he? Did Christ suffer? Of course he did. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing I'll write this up here The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What on earth is the times of refreshing? What are you talking about, Peter? And that he may send Jesus Christ. What's that? Send Jesus Christ. Second coming. What's he expecting? Your kingdom. 
He's expecting the kingdom. He's expecting the times of refreshing that prophets have foretold. And he's expecting Jesus to come back. Just like I told you in Acts 2, that's how you interpret Acts 2. If you interpret Acts 2 that way, you don't have to spiritualize Joel. You don't have to talk about this nonsense about Jesus reigning on a throne of David in heaven. Because that's not in his mind. He's not even thinking that way. Only somebody who knew the New Testament and was reading the New Testament back into Peter's situation would think that. Now look what he says here. Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration. Of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Well, has he or hasn't he? And what on earth is Peter talking about? If we can just get this, we can understand what Peter's expectation is, what his preaching is, and what his theology is. So, again, what do we do? We can... We can allow revelation to unfold as it progresses or we can jump ahead like this and go into Paul's epistles and then jump back like this with all of this information that these people didn't have and we can write our own story. Because we can say all this information that wasn't available then, we're going to stick it into Peter's head in Acts 3. And tra-la! All of a sudden the church is Israel. Peter would have been sick hearing that in Acts 3. That's not even anywhere. It's not a million miles within his thoughts at all. You say, well, why, um, why are you being so calm and, and placid and, and, you know, nonchalant about this? Because unless you get this, all right, you're going to misinterpret the Bible. Uh, we've gone, I've, I've mentioned the covenants once, I think, maybe twice, We've actually talked about the Davidic covenant once and only in passing. And maybe it's the covenants are fading from your mind already. Hopefully not. Because if they're like strong tram lines that are, are going to forge ahead and you're going to stick on them, I'm telling you, you're going to be able to interpret the New Testament better. And it's going to line up with the Old Testament. But the temptation is all, all is is always going to be to jump off the tram lines and catch, some, catch another tram going another direction. Okay? So you've got to watch it. <clears throat> times of refreshing, times of restoration. Times of refreshing, he's already linked with the second coming. Okay? All right. Second coming. Does this sound like second coming language? 
I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great north and day of the Lord. Yeah. Kind of does, doesn't it? Because that's in Peter's mind, that's why. He's expecting the second coming. He's expecting the kingdom. He's expecting that David's throne is set up on earth. He's talking to a bunch of Jews. F.F. Mm-hmm. Bruce, who, who wasn't, um, no, he was pre-millennial, but he, he wasn't, uh, he, he believed that the church in some way was the new Israel, which is very unfortunate because, uh, yeah, he, he should have known better. But um, I don't know if his commentary is on here, in the, his Acts commentary, but in his Acts commentary, Look at what he says about verses 19 and 21 of Acts 3. He links it up with this text in Matthew. Matthew 19, I think it's verse 48. Let's turn there quickly. Uh, 28. Yeah. Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration. Okay? So this is the word that Matthew uses. The palingonasia. And I forget the, the Greek terms that he uses here. Forgive me. Um, but. F.F. Bruce says, this, Peter is referring to this here in Acts 3. He's referring to the times of regeneration that Jesus was speaking of. And he said, you're going to sit on 12, when the Son of Man comes and sits on the throne of his glory, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What does that sound like? That sounds like a literal, physical, Davidic kingdom on earth. That's what this is about. We've read about this stuff. We've read about the wolf lying down with the lamb. We've read about the waters um, from the temple coming and um, purifying the, uh, the salty and the dirty waters of the earth. And we've, t- we've read about streams in the desert. We've read about the, um, the reaper overtaking the sower. We've read about, you know, beauty and, and uh, verdure and uh, productivity and, and peace and safety. That's what this is. Don't spiritualize this. Don't give in to people in the church that want you to spiritualize this stuff. That's not where Peter's head is at at all and it shouldn't be where our head is at. Um, if we get that, folks, then I'm telling you, we, uh, we, we can wear new glasses almost. It's actually the glasses we should have been wearing all the time when we read Paul. 
And then we'll find out why Paul is not surprised at the church. Do you remember what I did last week? Um, I said that um, Jesus died. Okay, you still see me over there. All right, Jesus died and then went up to heaven. Okay, but he said in Luke nineteen eleven that that parable was for those who were expecting the kingdom to be set up immediately. In other words, it wasn't going to be set up immediately. You see? Well, if the kingdom's not going to be set up immediately and Jesus is going off, you know, to receive the kingdom, and there's, there's a time gap of who knows what between when Jesus decides to come down again and set up his uh, kingdom on earth, which that's supposed to be okay, What's going to happen here? Just nothing? Crickets sounding for a a few thousand years? Complete inactivity of God? No one gets saved? Nothing happens? Uh, Until God's dealing with Israel again? Because this is the Israeli kingdom that's being spoken of. Do you see the logic of the church here? This is why Paul's not surprised. Because Paul knows that Jesus isn't coming back anytime soon. But God hasn't finished working. He may have, have uh, put Israel to the side and we'll see that that is exactly what Paul teaches. But it doesn't mean that God is not working savingly. It doesn't mean that this was not in the creation project from the beginning. It's just that we just found out about it. So he's not surprised by it. But he's not going to say, ah, this is really the fulfillment of what happens here. No, this is what happens now, between this and this. So you get that impression, you get that into your head, you see, and it really becomes much easier. But then, uh, and uh, we'll revisit this, Uh, probably next week, um, then people are going to say this. Do you mean to say there are two peoples of God? Yeah. Israel. Israel. And the church. Do you see? Is that what you're saying? And they can get pretty... Oh, hold on. (laughs) They can get pretty irate about it. They can get really angry about that because they believe in one harmonious people of God and when people ask you that say well what's wrong with that suppose I am what's wrong with it if that's the way God wants if that's what God says and that's the way God wants to do it what's wrong with that nothing really is there in fact, what we're going to find when we get to the, by the time we get to the end here is that the covenants, <clears throat> which are, some of them are applied to, in this area, to the church, but the covenants also pick up in their fulfillment here and they go out not just to Israel, but to the nations on earth. And you actually have three peoples of God which people get really irate about. (laughs) But 
I'm going to, I'm throwing this in right now as a freebie. Okay? You don't, again, you can throw this stuff out if you want. But, man is made in God's image. God is the Trinity. Why would you be surprised if mankind was one and three? Why would you be, why would that surprise you? You know this world is full of triads? Full of triads. Okay? And which we'll get into at an appropriate place. You know, length, width, height, and all that stuff. Past, present, future. Yes? Full of triads. It's just reality. Why wouldn't you, why would you not expect the focal point of creation, the focal point of God's work in the world, mankind, not to be a triad, to be just some big conglomeration? I put that forward as something that you might think about and say, ah, I never thought about that before. That actually is quite a beautiful thing. And maybe my expectation of this great big homogenous people, this just one glob of, say, people, okay, with no colour and no different differentiations, maybe that's something I haven't picked up from the Bible. Maybe that's just something I've picked up from my churchianity. Again, a little premature to say that, but um, I just, again, I'm think, you, you need to be thinking along these lines somewhat because these thoughts aren't going to come into your head. If, if what Paul is saying here, that's me, Paul, if what Paul's saying here is that uh, these uh, times of restoration involve the second coming and involve Israel, then they haven't come yet, obviously, so what's going on here? But if that's true, then the church is separate to Israel because Israel's kingdom is yet to come, which means the hope for Israel is still real because the covenants mean what they say. And if that's the case, there are at least two peoples of God. And as I say, if you don't like that, I'm sorry. But don't tell me that's not... I haven't got that from the Bible. I have got it from the Bible. You can disagree with me and you can, but I think the only way you can disagree, and this may be my arrogance, cause, and, and I haven't seen this, okay, maybe. I think I have because I've been trained in covenant theology for most of my life. But, uh, maybe there's something that I'm not seeing and maybe, um, there's a more biblical way of explaining this. But I think if you unpack and analyze the thinking of these people that want to have one people of God, there will be something unbiblical about its foundation. And you will find independent thinking that is not uh, latched to plain and clear scriptures. Uh, do you remember my rules of affinity? C1, C2? These are going to be C4s and C5s. Okay, which are human ingenuity going in search of proof texts. Okay, that's what you're going to find. And so this is, and I say you you must reject any theology that has that in it. 
You can only have direct uh, one-to-one correlation with Scripture or uh, 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 inevitable result of uh, groups of Scripture coming to a particular uh, conclusion or uh, the, uh, the best hypothesis. Okay? Reasoning to the best, best explanation. Those are the only three that I think should be allowed in biblical interpretation. <clears throat> and you're on safe ground when you do that. So, Matthew 19 is definitely, if you take it at face value, talking about a kingdom on earth where Jesus is going to reign on earth. He's obviously, because he's the son of David, going to reign on David's throne and it's going to be a Jewish kingdom. That's the kingdom that they uh, ask about in Acts 1.6 that Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons. That's the one that's in Peter's mind in Acts 2 when these phenomena prompt him and the Holy Spirit is prompting him to do this. And you're right about that, John. To quote this text from Joel 2, which is a culminative covenant text, and um, talk about the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of Jesus, and to talk about the times of refreshing and the times of restoration and the sending of Jesus back again. You say, well, this sounds awfully like the the kingdoms being offered to Israel again, just like Jesus did in the Gospels. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Deal with it. I'm sorry, just deal with it. God's very gracious. That's his expectation. He realizes that the people have to be not wicked. So he's like, get on board, let's make this kingdom come, buddy. Exactly, John. Let's repent, the kingdom is near, and if you repent, it'll come. Exactly, it's going to happen one day. It is going to happen one day. Why not then? He had every reason to believe that it would happen then. But it didn't. Well, but did Peter forget that Jesus had told him, you're going to drink of this cup? Because it sounds like... No. Well, he might have done, but there's no contradiction. Because again, what we have, just in the way that Jesus offered the kingdom, but knew they would refuse it and kill him, but it was a bona fide offer. He didn't make them kill him. (laughs) You know, they killed him of their own volition. Um, God had uh, planned it, and and, uh, it was within His decree. But He didn't. He didn't make. Didn't think people's thoughts for them. They thought their own thoughts. He just, God knew whether they would think those thoughts in those certain situations, do you see? And it would come together to uh, arrive at the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, in the same way, Jesus knew that Peter would die the death that he would die. John 21 you're talking about. Um, but Peter offered the bona fide offer here. He said, if you repent, you know, if you'll believe this message, you know, the times of refreshing will come. Only a few thousand of them did. There are 250,000 people in Jerusalem at this time. A paltry two or three thousand is nothing. 
That's not success. Yes, isn't it? Probably. All right. So, let's move, and I'm sorry that we we have to hop, skip and jump a bit here. So, we're back in Acts. Uh, I just, Acts chapter 3 again. Verse 22. Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. That's from Deuteronomy 18. The prophet like unto Moses. Okay, Again, messianic. He's bringing that one. Big. Uh, That's a big one. Okay, again, applying it to Jesus. If you don't, you're going to be destroyed. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and Genesis 22. And that is the third part of the Abrahamic covenant. But you see, these are Jews from all over the known world. So Peter, I think in context, is applying it because they've come from all over the known world. Do you see that? Jews by blood. Now what Peter, I believe, is... uh, he hasn't quite grasped it yet. And the reason I'm saying he hasn't quite grasped it is because Acts 10 hasn't happened yet. And remember Galatians 2 as well. Okay, Peter needs some, he needs a bit of a two before around the head in order to get this about the Gentiles. Okay, But there's enough in this, this quotation here, to know that Peter is expecting times of refreshing do not stop with Israel. He knows that if the times of refreshing comes and they accept Jesus as king, that salvation goes to the ends of the earth. Just in line with this part of the Abrahamic covenant. Because that's also what we looked at when we saw what the prophet said about the covenants. Okay, It's not enough that I should make you uh, just saviour of Israel. I will also make you... uh, the, the saviour of the Gentiles. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. That's in Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And in all of the, the nations looking at Israel and going grabbing an Israelite and so on, got, wanting to go up to the temple, wanting to see God. Do you see? That's what is in Peter's mind. So he quotes this. That's fully in line with covenant expectation to you first God having raised up his servant Jesus sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities again resurrection is the main doctrine that's being preached here we preach it once a year on Easter do these verses include the proselytes 
from verse 10 in chapter 2? Yes, probably, yeah. Uh, chapter 4, now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That's what they were preaching, the resurrection. We don't preach it. We need to preach the resurrection, not just on Easter Sunday. Um... Peter, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. And then quote Psalm 118, uh, just as Jesus had quoted it to them too. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Um, Verse 33. With great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Chapter Five, verse 29 Peter and the other apostles answered and said we ought to obey God rather than men you can read the context yourselves the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins we are witnesses of these things and also also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him all right, got to move on. Chapter uh, 7. Peter, uh, sorry, not Peter, Stephen. Again, uh, Stephen gives a basic history lesson, but it's a theological history. <clears throat> Verse 6. God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. Where did he say that? Which covenant did he say that in? Do you remember? It's Genesis 15. Okay, Abraham is put to sleep. A great dread comes upon him. says, you will sleep with your fathers, but know that your people will go into another nation, they'll dwell there, and in the fourth generation they'll come back. Okay? That's part of the, in the Abrahamic covenant. So he's picking that out. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. Now he's not saying that circumcision is the covenant. He's saying that the circumcision is the token of the covenant. That's just a a way of talking about the covenant and bringing the token together. It's like saying Noah's covenant is the covenant of a rainbow. Okay, We didn't make a covenant promising that this is in the oath, I'll, I'll make a rainbow all the time. That's the sign of the covenant oath that he took. And this is the same thing. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day and Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Israel into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles. And it goes on and on and on. 
And we can move to verse uh, 31. The angel of the Lord speaking to Moses. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses trembled and dared not look. And then you know what happened there. Verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you will hear. Deuteronomy 18, uh, verse 15 through to 19, I think. <clears throat> so again, that that's links it back with, he's already quoted that passage, you see. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the church, some translation have the church in the wilderness because it's a ecclesia. Well, ecclesia means a called out assembly. Okay, that's what it means. And the angel spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers and the one who received the living oracles to give to us whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. This is the theme of Stephen's um, talk here. These great men that God has sent have been rejected by Israel. It's not going to be a big surprise that they rejected the man, the prophet. They wanted to go back to Egypt, verse 40. Um, Then you have David and uh, Solomon building him a house, verse 37. Quotation here from the uh, words around the uh, Davidic covenant. And uh, then he hits home. He, he, he comes right into the future from David, right into, uh, sorry, the present. Verse 51, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. There's enough proof here. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. You rejected it. So what do they do? They kill him. Because you can't reason people into belief. Because it's an ethical thing. Do you see? It's an ethical thing. <clears throat> then Saul is called in chapter 8. Um, we have to move on, sorry. Just please, uh, just take a few nice cleansing breaths and there will be a few more minutes, okay? Uh, it's just that I've got to, uh, I've got to try and get through some of this material, okay? Um, Chapter 10, you know about chapter 10, Cornelius. So, the brief version of this is 
Peter, uh, well Cornelius first of all, he is a just man, he's a righteous man, he fears God. Okay, he's not saved. He's not saved until the end of the chapter. But God communicates with him. Tells him to go to Joppa, to Peter. Okay? Even though at that time Peter had not been told by God that Cornelius was coming. Then it goes over to Peter, he's on the rooftop, sees this vision, all of these unclean animals on it. Rise, kill and eat. I'm not going, I've never killed any of these unclean creatures. Okay? What the Lord calls clean, don't you call unclean. See, something has changed now that Jesus has come. Forever changed. And if you've been changed because you've been, you've been born again, as Jesus promised, you've been regenerated, uh, this is not unclean anymore. Okay? Because you, the Holy Spirit is part of what covenant? The what? The new covenant, which replaces what? The old covenant. But uh, which is what? The Mosaic covenant that has the, all the law and the restrictions. Do you see? Peter has to learn this. Okay? So this is what this is about. And then Peter here, he learns the lesson because... He talks about here um, that uh, <clears throat> uh, verse 43, to him all the prophets witness that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins and Peter understands whoever means whoever. It's not just an Israelite now. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word and those of the circumcision, Jews, who believed were astonished and as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Okay, well, they were astonished but they shouldn't have been that astonished because that's covenantally guaranteed. But they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that these men should not be baptized and who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And so on. So they're baptized. Chapter 11. Uh, chapter 11. This uh, is Peter vindicating this ministry. Okay? Because uh, Jews were concerned about what they're hearing about Gentiles getting baptized and, and so on. And so Peter rehearses this very thing to them. Okay? You'll see that in verse 9. Look at verse 13. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and said, who said to him, send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. This is Cornelius he's talking about. Who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. That doesn't mean he, he's talking about infants here. Do you understand? He's not talking about infants. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord saying, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This was a pregnant word in the early church. 
If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. They got it. It wasn't just a Jewish thing. It was also now a Gentile thing. They hadn't still quite got what was going on. I think maybe for some of them they thought they were in this period when really they were in this period. Do you see? But they they were getting it. All right. I should stop. We are in chapter 13 now. Okay, well, I don't want to stop, but I will. I really want to get to chapter 15. Okay, so can I get to chapter 15? I'll be real quick. Okay? <laughs> you, know, you know that I don't waste time and uh, go off on rabbit trails or anything, so stick with me. Um, we can buzz past chapter 12, which is Peter and, and so on. And we go into chapter 13, the missionary journey. Notice in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Prophets. New Testament prophets. Okay, There are New Testament prophets and Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The prophets are New Testament prophets. Okay? The job of the New Testament prophets was to extol the church and to predict because that's what prophets do. They prophesy. They foretell. Don't buy into the nonsense that prophets are foretellers. They're not in the Bible. Okay? They always link their denunciations with what God's going to do about it. They're foretellers. And so that's what these prophets were too. Why would they be foretellers? Well, because there was no New Testament. Okay, they wanted guidance. They wanted help. Um, It was extremely difficult to be a Christian in the ancient world. Uh, A New Testament scholar by the name of Larry Hurtado, uh, Abel, he teaches at the University of Edinburgh, but he's Canadian, I think. And he has written a very good book called Destroyer of the Gods. And if you want to find out, it's quite scholarly, but it's written for a you know, popular audience. If you want to find out what it was like to be a Christian back then and what sacrifices you had to make, that, read that book. It's a very helpful book talks about the first three centuries of the church. So, very difficult to be a Christian. Very awkward. Okay? Um, And um, that means that the prophets, you see, they had an important role in guiding people. So, then, anyway, Barnabas and, you know, Paul are sent out and you know about that. Um... Paul is preaching the resurrection. 
verse, uh, on chapter 13, verse 22. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them, that's Saul, uh, David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, what cut promise? The covenant promise. God raised up for Israel a saviour, Jesus, after John. John the baptism had preached. He's, he's linking it back to John the Baptist again, do you see? Now, Paul in Acts 13, obviously now he's going to preach uh, a fully orbed gospel that we recognise. So it's going to be different than what you find in Acts 2 and Acts 3. Because we're, we're moving in, the years have passed and we're moving into the church age. This opportunity is gone now. We're now fully in this and we're not in this at all. Do you see? Are, we, uh, are you nodding because you want to nod? Because you want to go home? <laughs> All right. Um, Men and brethren, verse 26, sons of the family of David and of those who among you fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. Again, he's linking those of the family of Abraham, who are they? The Jews. And those who fear God. Okay? Who are Gentiles. Okay, not necessarily here uh, technically God-fearers, proselytes, but, but Gentiles. So he is making a distinction, even though he understands that they're together. Verse 30, uh, resurrection. Verse 33, resurrection. Verse 34, resurrection. Verse 37, resurrection. Um come down to verse 44 on the next Sabbath almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God but when the Jews saw the multitudes they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming they opposed the things spoken by Paul then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first this stuff and Paul also remember went to the synagogues But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles. That's from that messianic prophecy in Isaiah 49. That you should uh, be for salvation to the ends of the earth. See, Paul understands that the prophecy of Isaiah, which has to do with Christ as the new covenant... Okay, I'll make you a covenant. Remember that, verse 8? Uh, that, that applies here to the church. You say, well, how can it apply here and apply here in the kingdom? Because the prophets envisioned a kingdom, didn't they? Israel on top and all the blessings and all the natural phenomena and so on. So how can he put it here? Well, he doesn't put the natural phenomena changes here, but he does put the salvation here. Because the Holy Spirit is bringing salvation to the Gentiles. Just in a way that was unexpected. And new. Doesn't mean that this isn't going to happen just the way the prophets foretold. But the prophets didn't speak about this. 
And when we get to Paul's epistles, he's going to be clear that the prophets didn't talk about it. This was a mystery. Okay? So, if you're going to go into the Old Testament to see the church, you're not going to find anything. Where are you going to find this, actually? Nothing. Okay? Because the prophets didn't prophesy about it. They prophesied this. Okay? Chapter 14. And... um, No, actually, I don't need to go to chapter 14 at all, do I? No. So, chapter 15. And we're, this is where we'll stop, chapter 15. Uh, read chapter 15. And then please read chapter 26. So, read chapter 15 and chapter 26 of Acts for next week. What we're going to find here... In chapter 15 is, uh, again, Peter rehearsing the very same thing that we saw with Cornelius in Acts 10. Then Paul's going to speak and James is going to speak. And James is going to quote from Amos 9. So read Amos 9 again and look at the quotation because it seems that James is going to do a Peter on us in Acts 2 and say this was fulfilled. And then we're going to have the same questions all again. Oh, this must mean that uh, it's all spiritualized and, you know, it's all fulfilled in the church and so on. So you're going to be tempted to do that. Uh, And we'll deal with that quotation next week and see that that is not what James is doing. He's just saying that what Amos talks about can be applied to what's going on here. Okay? All right, any questions before we close? Yes. Uh, going back to the beginning of teaching us, the tongues. Yes. Um, we know that there's churches and specifically when they speak in tongues and um, they say heavenly language. Yes. I have heard the teaching you're talking about, it's just languages. Yes. So how should we, what should we think about that? I mean, I don't want to say they're lying, but... You know you're not, you know, but you know what I mean. Well, um, we can deal with it when we get to First Corinthians, but um, there is absolutely no exegetical grounds for saying that there is a heavenly language, unless you believe Paul actually gave his body to be burned too. He said, "If okay, if." I speak with the tongues of men and angels. If I give my body to them. He didn't. He didn't. Yes. Okay. Okay. It's hyperbole. Uh, So, that's a very bad proof text for saying that what I'm doing is that. There is one verse that you must, everyone that claims to speak in tongues, and I'm not a cessationist. Okay. So, understand that about me. I'm not a cessationist. But I'm a skeptic. Big time. Um, but at the same time, there is one verse that everyone who claims to speak in tongues must face, and that's 1 Corinthians 14.22. And you can tell, if I may be so bold, whether they are willing to face that text or whether they are willing or they are unwilling to face it and they back away from it. 
and saying, well, I, I just know that I'm closer to God. Yeah. And they back away from that text. Yeah, what's always got me is they say, well, you just open your mouth and I'm saying, yeah, well, how do I know this? Well, where's that in the Bible? <laughs> where's that in the Bible? What we see here is that the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. They weren't going to be, you know, like that. And, and I mean, sure, if you're dumb enough to do that, which I was as a young Christian, I've done the yagagagagagaba, you know, only for a few minutes and I gave up. But, but nobody did. I interpreted it myself. I was like, this is a load of rubbish. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, Anyone who's, who's going to do that, they have to either bring themselves back into normality or they will, you know, be taken out into the, you know, weirdo yeah. land, weirdo, weirdo world or worse. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I'm going to uh, close with that. Uh, Nice devotional thought. <laughs> <laughs>